0: Welcome to the Packet Pushers Priority Queue, where we head to networking's curiosity shop and pick out the most interesting objects to chat about. I am Ethan Banks, your host today. You can follow me at EC Banks and the show at Packet Pushers. Today, a show on multi-layered control planes with Russ White. For those of you who might not know you, Russ, would you please introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Russ White, a network architect at LinkedIn, 16 years at Cisco, two years at Ericsson, two years at Verisign, other odds and ends and places, but primarily focused on BGP security and large-scale, actually hyperscale uh, data center design now at LinkedIn.
0: So you've had a, a presentation floating around, and I, I forget how I stumbled across it. You sent me the link or I found it on my own, but uh, it was really uh, multi-layered control planes is kind of where we ended up, and it starts with a discussion about centralized centralizing the control plane versus not centralizing the control plane, as in... Uh, centralized control plane, a common SDN architecture. You've got a central control that's doing all the thinking and uh, and then sending out what it wants the network to look like versus a distributed control plane, kind of what we're used to, decentralized. Why is that, uh, to kind of set up our conversation here, why is that centralizing and decentralizing the control plane such a big discussion in the industry that we've been having really for about five years now?
1: Oh, Ethan! Five years—go way back. <laughs> when I f- <laughs> when I first started working on this stuff, I was installing. Um, terminal emulation cards, and Z100s. And that's essentially a centralized control plane. And we had centralized control planes before SS7 in the telephone network. So we've been playing with centralized control planes for a long time. In fact, the very first decentralized one was the Hello protocol on the original ARPANET backbone, uh, I think, was the first decentralized control plane. Before that, everything was centralized. So why is it a big deal? Because we seem to be keep bumping back and forth between these two things, we have this whole SS7 thing that we did, and then along comes IP, and we're going to do that, and IPX, which you know everybody knows IPX is just IP extended, right? Um, at least that's what they told us in tech, and <laughs> <we had laughs> Xerox Star, and all those things, right? We had all these different things that were all centralized, decentralized, and it seems like recently we've been pushing back into this whole centralized realm with what you said was uh, software software. software-defined networks. Now, I tend to think that software-defined networks don't need to be centralized, but that tends to be the impression that people have when they think of a software-defined network, right? You have a centralized controller, you have OpenFlow, and that's it. That's what you do. So, that seems to be something that we do a lot of. We we centralize, decentralize. And for years and years and years, there's this feeling in the industry that, wow, this decentralization stuff, it's so hard. You know, if I could just centralize it, I could just make all my problems go away. And on the other side, exactly the same thing from the other direction. Yeah.
0: <laughs> centralization is also hard. And and in your presentation, you pointed out that w- when we say hard, what we mean is uh, really complex. I mean, decentralization has got its own set of complexities. There are uh, protocols to set up adjacencies. There are uh, then decisions and uh, software that must execute to uh, come up with uh, solving some problem, whether that's reachability or policy implementation. That's all complex. But if it's centralized, it's You're trading off one set of complexities for a different set of complexities. Right, Um, right,
1: right. Yeah, with centralization, what do you have? You have, hey, that link went down, and I have to tell the controller about it, and the controller has to figure out a new way of doing things and ship all this information back out, right? So that's just a different form of complexity,
0: I mean, so do we ever really get away from complexity? I mean, that seems to be what a lot of people are, are hoping for. Well, if we just change the model, we'll be uh, away from this complexity and things are going to be simpler. I don't I don't know that that's true, though.
1: No, 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 no. For anybody who thinks we can get away from complexity, all of us old timers get to go sit in a corner and laugh hilariously at hilarious them <laughs> for hours on end. Because... <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to get away from complexity. Complexity just is a part of networking. It's just the way it, the way things work. We like to say that hard problems require complex solutions and there's just no way around that formula if you're going to solve a hard problem you have to have a complex solution and it doesn't matter whether you're in the physical world solving uh, people hitting their brakes too hard and hitting other cars because they lock up their brakes and slide or whether you're talking about a network Hard problems require complex solutions. That's just the way it is.
0: Still, though, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deviate away from your presentation and kind of drill into this point, because I think there's a, a, a movement underway, or at least a, an attitude that certain network engineers are, are getting to that, man, if we just simplified things, if we stopped implementing more complex uh, engineering solutions and, and stuck with what was simple as much as we could, uh, life is better. I mean, I don't think you'd disagree with that, would you? Oh, no, not at all. Not at all.
1: You have to, I mean, you have to do something about the complexity problems we're facing today. That's absolutely true. But the question you have to ask yourself is, why is that complexity there? Why are we actually building this complexity in? I think a lot of the problem we run into is, I see this all the time. Well, I'm just going to do an overlay and the overlay is dirt simple and solves all of my problems and all that underlay stuff, all that physical networking stuff, it can just go away. Over the top, and everything over the top is simpler. Well, it's not really because you're just hiding all the complexity.
0: Right. It's, it's only simpler in the, if, if taken as its own, as if it was a complete solution unto itself, when in fact the underlay is what's required to deliver those overlay packets. So from a certain point of view, an overlay is simpler, but in fact there is so much underneath uh, required to deliver uh, that overlay and, uh, and provide the connectivity that the overlay needs to uh, get those packets end to end.
1: That's exactly right. And in fact, if you look at complexity as a model, there is actually an interaction surface between that underlay and that overlay. There's a point where those two things interact with one another. To give you an example, the overlay acts like it's a If you take a VXLAN link, for instance, on top of an IP network, that VXLAN link appears to be just a point-to-point link, a single hop, point-to-point link. However, if the IP network underneath that VXLAN shifts, you can get changes in delay and jitter and other characteristics in the network in that What appears to be a single hop network from the overlay perspective that you can't predict and you can't understand without understanding what's going on in that underlay. So you might call that, um, you might call the, the VXLAN overlay an abstraction and the changes underneath it you could call a leaky abstraction or a leak in the abstraction, which is causing the underlay state to leak into the overlay. And this is where the complexity comes in, because you don't really think about that until it happens. And then all of a sudden, when it happens, you're like, oh, wait, I've got to go in there and actually troubleshoot that IP network again. But I thought you got rid of all that.
0: I think kind of another interesting point here is that a a network can be controlled centrally we we know how to do this but in fact the network is a distributed system no matter what made of many discrete parts uh split up Uh, so you can manage it centrally you can have a centralized control plane but in fact it is still distributed does that make sense to you Right.
1: Yes. I mean, you still have to distribute the database, uh, the database that represents your control plane through all the devices on that network in some way. You can't just magically have them appear. You can't have, uh, what are they, entangled quantum level particles that <laughs> <laughs> when the controller flips. The rotation of the molecule or of the atom, the atom in the switch flips the same direction and causes traffic. To, I mean, maybe to someday the...
0: we'll get there, but yeah, not yet. Yeah,
1: but not yet. <laughs> So so you still have this time differential, and you still have these other things, which gets you into this whole cap theorem, right? You have consistency, availability, partitionability. This is a very, very old construction within the database world. And if you just treat the control plane as a distributed database, then you can apply the cap theorem directly to the control plane set of problems.
0: I mean, it's, and, it's an old theorem, but it is one that comes up in IT architecture uh, all the time now and anytime you read about cloud architectures for example cap theorem comes up uh, if you are going to distribute an application is usually the context in which I read it as opposed to networking but again consistency availability partitionability there's trade-offs among those three that you make when building a distributed system
1: right right you can actually take them to the extreme and you can to understand the theorem even though this isn't the way it works in the real world but you can take them to the extreme and say if I have a single database server and i never partition it i always have a consistent view of that database and as long as that database server is up the database is totally available
0: and again by partitioning we mean splitting up that distributed system whether it's a network or something else into one or or into uh, multiple parts at least two right making multiple copies of
1: that database across multiple servers in other words. So if I take if I take a single server and is, my availability is totally typed to that single server and my I can see is always there because it's a single copy of the take that database two copies. Now all of a sudden, if one server goes down, I have another server I can go to right? So that gives me better availability. Now, I've partitioned the database in a sense, but now what's happened is is that my consistency suffers because there's absolutely no way physically to get both of those copies of that database to look identical at the same time. So if I write to copy A, I cannot immediately at the same moment be reading from copy B and get the same information back out. So, therefore, I've got to give those two databases time to synchronize. So, anytime I have one database, I have perfect consistency. The more I spread it out, the more inconsistent the database becomes, but the more available it becomes. So, the more I partition it, And partitioning, by the way, has more than one sense than just making copies. Partitioning the database can also mean um, what we consider sharding in the database world, right? I actually take all my records from A to D and put them in one database server and E to whatever and put them in a second. I can shard out the database. So, that allows me to partition the database, but then that causes further consistency problems while adding yet again to the availability. So... You get into this whole thing where if you go to the extremes, you can get perfect consistency, but you don't get perfect availability, and you don't have any partitionability. If you get a perfect partitionability, then you have imperfect or very bad consistency, which, by the way, is what distributed routing protocols do. They actually choose partitionability over consistency on a regular basis.
0: So apply this uh, to the control plane even more. You mentioned routing protocols as an example. And right, partitionability. everybody can work whether or not everybody's consistent. There's some amount of time for convergence uh, to take place where everyone is presumably consistent again. Um, When when thinking about your uh, control plane and decentralizing it versus centralizing it, how does CAP theorem fit into that?
1: Well, a perfect example of CAP theorem is micro loops in a link state protocol, because what happens is is that when a link fails, a link state protocol has to detect, then it has to flood that information. Well, the local computation can occur immediately, which could cause the best path to change, but then the other nodes in the network must wait to to compute the new best path, to rec- they have to receive that new flooded information. So I partition the database among multiple nodes, which makes them highly available and makes everybody have the ability to read them at the same time. But what's going to happen is, is that as different nodes compute best path at different times, you're going to actually get micro loops in the network. You're going to get very short duration routing loops. And so this is just a symptom of CAP theorem applied directly to a link state protocol. Uh, same Same thing with BGP. BGP never converges on the global internet, so to speak, because the changes at the edges occur so fast that the information cannot be distributed all the way through the network end to end. So the database is never truly consistent. So those are just instances of that sort of problem happening in a distributed control plane.
0: Okay, so all of this was set up to kind of get to a a proposal that you've got here, kind of some big ideas about how we would best deal with this um, from a control plane perspective. Now, the traditional model is the distributed one that I think most of the networkers listening to this show would be familiar with. Uh, The way SDN does it in certain models, um, where it's more centralized, is kind of new and emerging, and that sort of a model we've talked about on the show quite a bit. Um, But you've suggested that maybe we could break up the control plane into layers. Can you you talk through that idea? Yeah, sure. So when I look at what a control
1: plane actually does, it seems to do two things, or well, three things. It um, finds base reachability, what we might call base reachability. What is located where on the network from a topology perspective. It also discovers your base topology. So what node is connected to what node and how those connections happen, what's bidirectional, what's unidirectional, things like that. So those two, two things seem to be the primary purpose of a routing protocol like ISIS or OSPF. Now, what's interesting is when you get to BGP, we walk into a completely different world. Because in BGP, as it's well known, if you read any drafts and follow the work of like Daniel Walton and and other people who have been working in this area for a long time, you can get into what are called wedgies. Or you can get into situations where you have permanent oscillation between two routes. Well, why is that? Is that the fault of BGP? Is that just poor protocol design. In reality, it's not. What it is, is is it's an expression of BGP's primary purpose, which is to deliver policy in parallel with reachability. So I can advertise my reachability, but I can also advertise my policy. So other instances of policy might be things like, I'm going to go out and adjust all of my metrics on all of my links so that I shift traffic for particular destinations over a less used link. The most extreme example, perhaps, is traffic engineering with MPLS. I actually have an offline controller that computes a path, or I can have an offline controller that computes a path that runs a, well, it runs like a constrained SPF that's going to direct traffic down particular tunnels to make sure that every link in in the network is used fairly consistently. So, that is perhaps an extreme example of policy interacting with a control plane from a reachability perspective. So, when I look at a control plane, I think reachability, I think, topology. But then you walk into this other world with traffic engineering and BGP, and all of a sudden I'm dealing with policy. So now this policy piece seems like and feels like it's a different thing from reachability to me.
0: And policy could be as... uh basic as policy-based routing, where you've got something... I've always thought of that as kind of exception processing. You know, if if base reachability is computed, but occasionally you want to do something different, you put a policy in place.
1: Right, exactly. And it's policy-based routing. That's a good instance of it. I actually think you can extend it to filtering, uh, filtering packets or Uh, service chaining or anything like this segment routing, where you're actually trying to direct traffic in order to even out hot spots on a fabric or in a network or a core or something or anything of that nature, there's a lot of different reasons we use this. I like to characterize policy personally as anything that takes traffic off the shortest path, given that the term shortest path has multiple meanings and it's a fuzzy word in and of itself. Right Or a fuzzy phrase, but nonetheless, anything that takes traffic off the shortest path is what I consider policy so- and, and
0: you're really building out a definition a control plane that's much broader than what people might think of if they're thinking very strictly about um, you know a router and how two routers maybe communicate with one another in that context. Uh, Now you're saying, well, we can talk about service chaining. We can talk about things that maybe exist outside of strict protocols that we're used to thinking of when we think of control plane.
1: Right, exactly, and that's actually part of the problem we run into when we're doing things like I2RS and the ITF, is that we run into the situation where you don't exactly know where the management plane ends and the control plane starts. It seems to be a little bit fuzzy in there someplace, so some people would call this management rather than control plane, but I try, I tend to think in terms of if it impacts packet forwarding, if it actually impacts my rib, then it's control plane. So, that's kind of the way I think about it in, as, as a model of the way a router works or the way a switch works. What's the difference between switching and routing, right? It's uh, marketing. So yeah. at this point, yes. <laughs> pretty much. So, so um, yeah, so this is kind of the way I think of it. And yeah, you're right. There is some bit here where there's a bit of fuzziness between the control plane and the management plane. But there's no real way we're going to get that defined in a strong way. So I tend to think of this as the management plane deals with physical interfaces, fan trays, configuring a protocol. The control plane deals with anything that actually impacts packet forwarding in the rib per se.
0: But then you're really describing multiple... um origin points for control because you could have a routing protocol you that is like ospf that is uh doing what it does and what most people listening to this show are familiar with but then you can have again uh, some other computing engine that is figuring out an alternate path and could uh via a policy impact that router's um forwarding as well as you said anything that impacts the rib
1: right for instance pcp PCEP, right which, or PSAP, which allows you to use an offline computation to build MPLS tunnels. That then you take the traffic at your network edge, dump it it into an MPLS tunnel, and poof, across the network it goes. Uh, Segment routing is another instance of this exact same thing, where you dump things into a tunnel, and you can direct the traffic across particular links. Policy-based routing, if you wanted to configure it on every router in your network, uh, would provide you with the same sort of capability if you would, throughout the entire network.
0: So we've got two layers we've defined so far, kind of a a base layer, the one we mostly think of, reachability. We've got a second layer here that is um, that exception processing, if you will, policy, uh, traffic engineering, uh, flow engineering, and so on. Uh, And then you've got one more layer in in your model.
1: Yeah, business logic. So this is where you get into into intent. And this is traditionally where we think of SDN interacting with a network, right? What you have is is you have an application that spins up, has two or three VMs. They need their own private L2 for some reason. Um, Although, you know, death to L2, death to L2. But they need their own private L2 for some reason. So the Application talks to the SDN controller. The SDN controller sets up a little private L2 overlay topology. You have all this business logic that goes into it. Or elephant flows are another good example. Particular application pops up, says I'm going to have an elephant flow. The controller can say, no, wait till 5 o'clock tonight or something like that. So you can interact that with bandwidth calendaring and other policies at a business level. So, right. So you kind of have this business logic that's supposed to drive the way the network works. And I think where we get into trouble too much is we try to take that business logic and drive it all the way to reachability. We tend to take this view that the control plane is this unified thing. It's OSPF. I'm going to take my business logic and i'm going to use it to adjust my ospf metrics
0: which well that is a pretty logical way to achieve policy in certain instances but you're suggesting that that's not always appropriate
1: well i would say that this gets back to the why do we put ip and tcp in two different layers because they serve two different purposes, and when they serve two different purposes, they actually produce a set of opaque layers that ride on top of each other. So now if I can figure out some way of allowing OSPF or ISIS to do what it does, which is find reachability, discover the topology, react to the topology changes, and I can find some other way for the business stuff to go down and reach and touch some other policy engine that will actually overlay or will... I hate to use the word overlay because overlay is so overused in our industry right now. Overused overlays. That's like a little prime thing going on there anyway. To to actually go in and touch those things and adjust the policy in some way on each individual router throughout the network such that you don't need to adjust what OSPF is doing. You're just reaching in and touching like a side channel. So one way of looking at this is is if I had B G P laying on top of OSPF or B G P laying on top of ISIS. And the only thing I used B G P for in my network was to manage those exceptions you were talking about.
0: Well I think it comes back to I2RS as well. Wasn't that part of the intent right. there?
1: Yeah, that is part of the intent of i2RS, right. So the problem with BGP is this overlay is that BGP doesn't do a lot of source-based stuff. It doesn't, I mean, you can use FlowSpec to do filtering. There are things you can do, but it's kind of hacking on the protocol. And so you're trying to shove a lot of stuff into a protocol that wasn't really designed for this job using, so this would be considered using BGP as your southbound API, or as your API into your policy overlay. So I2RS is actually designed specifically for this, is that what you would do is you'd be able to say, all right, ISIS has calculated this route. That's great, I'm happy. That's the best way to go 80% of the time. For this 20% of the time, however, I don't want the traffic to go that way. I want to adjust that traffic flow. Well, there are multiple ways I can go about adjusting that traffic flow. I could do PSEP. I could do, which is a valid answer, by the way, Um, I could do BGP. I could do lots of other things. Many of the problems, many of the ways I'm going to be able to do it, however, are not to the level of policy based routing, in that I can't look at source addresses. I can't look at classes of service. I can't look at things like that and do deeper inspection on the packet to adjust those traffic flows. With I2RS, if the Yang models are built right and if they're implemented correctly, I will be able to do those things. So,
0: this is getting back to something you mentioned in the future of networking summit at Interop. Uh, that idea of we're we're trying to get certain protocols to do everything when in fact certain things just need to do their job and and you know have a finite set of responsibilities. You know, you were talking about well, sure we could use BGP to do that, but is it the right answer? Um, and, and it sounds like what you're lobbying for in this layering model is. Let the reachability protocols um, do that, if that's what they're best at. And then we move to a middle layer that is some other process some other function that is accomplishing these other things, traffic engineering, you know, and so on, not ask reachability protocols to keep doing that stuff. And and therefore, we need a a strictly defined middle layer that we're going to hook into that we're going to communicate with to impact the rib uh, and override that lower layer reachability protocol. Am I on the right track?
1: Yep, that's exactly right. That's exactly where this goes. Because today, what we're doing is we're trying to hook into an API that either talks directly to the FIB, right? This is open. OpenFlow. I can actually set the forwarding table on every device in my network individually. But now what I've done is I've actually sucked up reachability into the controller, which seems like a layering violation to me. Um, there's a thing called subsidiary principle where what you're trying to do is you're trying to put control at the point where the information is. And if you suck all that information up into the controller, I'm actually taking control out of where the information is and putting it someplace else. So that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Why would you do that? It makes well, more there's, sense.
0: There's a problem here, reinventing the wheel as well that's come up. Why am I asking controller to do something we've been good at doing for a long time in a, in a decentralized way?
1: Right. Exactly. That makes perfect sense. But on the other side, when I try to shove policy, into my routing protocol using tags and filters and all this other weird stuff, I'm going the opposite direction, right? Where does policy actually live? Policy lives close to the business. What drives my policy? It's applications and, so, and my business requirements. So what I need to do is I need to, to take the subsidiary principle and run it in reverse, or not in reverse, but the same way and say, where does the policy come from? oh, the policy comes from my business. So what I need to do is I need to put my policy decision points close to where the information is that's required to make those policy decisions, which is closer to my business, which means centralizing that stuff.
0: Aha, yep. So so what we're really saying here is this isn't an either-or proposition. I don't have to manage my network centrally or you know, in a decentralized way. I can have some functions run decentralized, I can have other functions that, as you say, uh, a policy that needs to be close to the business be administrated through a central interface and distributed centrally. Um, right. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so this
1: is a little bit different from the way we see control planes today, right? Today we see control planes as, I'm going to stick a tag in OSPF and it's going to go out there and hit a route map and that's going to set a particular metric on an interface. But now, if you think about that chain, I must have that policy pre-configured on that router to react to that tag a certain way, and I have to have an injection point for that tag, and I have to have a management system for all those tags, and all of that stuff that goes with it. So I'm creating all these interactions. I'm not just creating interaction services, I'm making these interaction surfaces really, really deep. My OSPF is actually carrying my policy, or my ISIS is carrying my policy.
0: It's interesting. In the beginning, we had talked about uh, the problem of complexity, and when you describe it that way, using OSPF in this manner, tags and route maps that are going to react to tags, and and then policy having to be on all routers so that it can properly react to this information that OSPF is carrying, that is very complex. When if I can pull those elements out, Uh, I can make OSPF itself simpler, take the policy, move it to a different layer, and implement it in its own application, which in theory by itself would be simpler. So we're accomplishing, rather than having one very complex system to deliver this policy, we end up with two separate systems that are simpler in and of themselves, uh, and easier to troubleshoot and manage in theory in and of themselves, uh, while ending up with the same forwarding result. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what we're trying to get to with this type of things. So, yeah, so this is, I think, an interesting concept around the way to do control planes. And I think we're actually seeing the world move in this direction much more than we might imagine. Um, For instance, segment routing is perhaps a perfect example of this, where what's happening is people are saying with segment routing, You see that you need to have traffic engineering, but you want to do traffic engineering in a lot simpler way in your network. So what do you do? You just run your routing protocol, your routing protocol, or... Um, LDP can be used to simply distribute your labels, so every all your label allocation is just done. It's pretty standard, pretty fixed. You kind of know what those things do. Then, in order to build a customized path, rather than going out and tweaking metrics or doing all this other stuff, you just have a controller that says, "Oh no, it's got to touch Node A." node B, node C, and it's got to hit this server. And by the way, when it hits that server, I want it to use this path over here instead of that path because I want that other path is overloaded or because it's between five and 6 p.m. tonight or whatever the case might be. So this allows the centralized controller to set up those customized paths while keeping the routing protocol itself very, very simple underneath. So that's kind of where I think segment routing is going. I2RS, I see the same way. I2RS, this whole concept of, I'm going to have a filter-based rib, and I'm going to have a rib. I'm going to take a Yang model, and this Yang model is going to interact directly with that rib. Poof, if I need to change this particular thing, I ship a Yang model to the router. Let's ignore how that Yang model gets there for the moment. Once that Yang model is there, the rib is changed, and then the the traffic takes a different path but the routing protocol itself hasn't touched any of this stuff according to the routing protocol the topology is still the same reachability is still the same so this seems like a much simpler model
0: so what are the challenges implementing something like this it sounds very logical um we don't have a i mean you've given a few examples uh, like segment routing of, of systems that are kind of this way or you know are pretty well with this layered control plane model um but But as you look, you know, in the wider industry, are there challenges getting this done?
1: Certainly. Uh, Two things. Well, more than two things. First of all, there is just simply old-fashioned inertia. (laughs) We, (laughs) we, We like doing things the way we like doing them. And that's the way it is. And we tend to see the control plane as this unified thing. It's very hard for people to get their minds around splitting the concept of policy from the concept of reachability. Partially, this is because it's a slightly artificial divide, right? When I reach in and I touch the rib through I2RS or I build a service chain, what I'm actually doing is I actually am changing the rib. So I am changing reachability or pathing, so therefore the two interact with one another in a way that often makes it appear as though they are the same thing. A classic example of this is a static route. Everyone thinks of a static route as a direct entry in the rib. It's really not. It's a piece of configuration that a process reads that creates state in the rib. It's not actually a direct entry in the rib. But this static route thing trips us up when we're building models, mental models of how a router works or how these things work. So inertia is one thing. Getting our minds around it and understanding this concept is another. And a third is just that we we just have this whole thing with vendors and proprietary systems and closed systems and doing the the things the way we've done and being able to differentiate ourselves and special snowflakes and things like this that cause us to want to have a unified system that just works. Um, I, I heard somebody the other day say, well, I want to be able to go to the store, pick up a computer and it just works. I want my network to work the same way. Well, yes, but no, because Yes, because that's nice, but no, because your business isn't a commodity, so there's got to be some place in your business where there's some snowflakiness that can't be melted, where there's some edge of uniqueness that makes your business what it is, and unless there's a way to drive that into the network architecture without actually causing the network architecture to be very complex on its own. We're going to continue building all these snowflake networks. So there's this whole roundabout comes back to complexity problem in there someplace.
0: Well, I'll argue that point to some degree that we're we're definitely building more snowflakes than we need to because businesses do have a very broad set of common problems. And yes, there are elements of uniqueness, sure. But, uh, but generally speaking, I think we could do a lot better with some reference architectures that we all just adhere to if there was such a thing in the industry.
1: Right, right. But see, that's exactly the point. When you get to the point where you're splitting the control plane, then you can actually do more of that rather than less. Because if you think about it, if my special bit of snowflakiness is that I have this application that uses the network a special way, what is my option today? go build the entire network control plane and all around that application. And by the way, this is what hyperscalers do for a living, right? This is how Google and Azure and LinkedIn and other people actually work, is they take an application, they build their network around the application. And that's great, but now what happens is, is that you are actually building the whole network as a special snowflake because I have an application that's a special snowflake. What if I could take that bit of special snowflakiness and somehow divide it off from the base network architecture so that i no longer drive the network with the entire network design with that one particular thing does that make sense because that's kind of a weird thing when you're thinking about it
0: it does but i mean particularly from the aspect of the if you're driving everything based on one unique application you're kind of married to that topology um Mm. And
1: control plane and policy mechanisms and everything, right? That's what you've done. You've built your entire network around it. But, but on the other hand, if you as a business don't have some application or some uniqueness, then what are you actually selling? That's, that's you... kind of the trade-off you run into.
0: Exactly. And so some business service that you're providing is going to drive some particular change in your IT infrastructure so that you can provide that service and be unique and be differentiated. Uh, You're you're suggesting that because your business is unique, there will be IT infrastructure uh, implications because of that uniqueness. And yeah, we want to minimize those as an industry as much as possible, but there's still going to be something that's unique. And so how do you most effectively manage that?
1: Right. How, how do you split that uniqueness off into its own thing so that I can use the same equipment that whoever does, right? Wells Fargo or whoever else, and the same basic control planes and structures, but yet I can express the uniqueness of my business in a way that doesn't drive all the way down to my hardware,
0: essentially. Which goes to that middle layer.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So this comes all the way yeah. back to that middle layer.
0: So so, so at the moment, this is a, a presentation, an idea, concept, something that you've shared, you've presented multiple times now, and now we're having a conversation about it here on Packet Pushers. Is there, you know, beyond the brain of Russ White, does this idea have traction? I mean, is this, you know, moving in any kind of a direction?
1: Uh, I like the way you say that, Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> Beyond the Brain of Russ White. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) It could be a pretty long book. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, yeah, actually, this is kind of the direction that I'm working at in uh, LinkedIn right now. This is kind of what we're looking at as a direction to go on our control plane for our LinkedIn data center fabric is being very intentional about splitting policy from reachability, simplifying the the routed, the distributed routing protocol to the bare minimum, um, almost to the point of being self-configuring as much as possible. then, thinking of ways of pushing the policy on top of that. Now, given that we're running a data center and we're a hyperscaler, what that's probably going to mean is it's probably going to mean some sort of pub subsystem rather than a REST comp or a RESTful interface. And if I were running a large provider running a core transit network. I might think more in terms of um, a REST comp type interface and a centralized controller. So it depends on your situation and what you're actually trying to build. But in the end, we're looking at things like PSEP, segment routing, I2RS, Yang, finding different ways of actually managing the policy on our fabric and handling things like hotspots and bandwidth calendaring and security zones and things like that without touching the base protocol, which you may know from reading blog posts, today our base protocol is BGP. We run BGP on the fabric. Whether or not that remains is up in the air, you know, there's all these questions swirling around this right now, but that's kind of
0: uh, where that goes. But there's not ready-made packaging to be able to implement, you know, a middle layer uh, like you're describing. The protocols are there, but there's not NOSs that are necessarily ready for that. Are you guys rolling your own NOS?
1: Ah, challenging questions, challenging questions. You are correct. There are no NOSs that are built in this specific way. We are working around various NOS options right now. One of them is OpenSwitch. However, the primary goal I I have for the NOS project, personally, as being the control plane guy looking down on the NOS, you know, there are NOS guys who have different sets of goals within LinkedIn, but my goal from a control plane perspective is to not care about the NOS. Wow, that sounds really mean, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs)
0: you just want an interface you don't really care what the nos is as such
1: right exactly what i'm after is a standard set of interfaces so that i can actually implement this and we will end up rolling our own control plane to some degree uh that's going
0: to mean you know if if it's open switch that means you're going to take open switch as a base and then throw some daemons on there that make sense to you that give you that those interfaces that you require to do that middle layer control plane
1: right exactly now It may not be OpenSwitch as it exists today even. We're not even sure about that right now. This is all kind of up in the air being worked on, considered. There's a lot of projects internally going on. We have some external partners we're working with and things like this that we're trying to work through all of this and and make sure that we get where we want to be. We may end up with an OpenSwitch base with some basic components of OpenSwitch replaced to fit our needs, right? I mean, that's just the way that piece works.
0: Sure, and and what OpenSwitch is suited to really uh, architecturally, it and some other NASs that are out there, giving you the ability to make whatever interfaces you want, you know, and run them as protected uh, services uh, on that switch,
1: right. Exactly, exactly. So then we'll be looking at routing protocols and how to get to where we want to with a routing protocol. And then we'll be looking at whether we use PSAP or Yang models in a pub sub. Or if you know much about LinkedIn, you know that we're a big Kafka shop. So Kafka is our pub sub. So that's the obvious candidate for carrying policy information in the network. Uh, Whether or not that actually works is. A matter of experimentation and making sure it does work, right? But that's the obvious first target is something like Kafka.
0: Well, let's shift the conversation from LinkedIn to the broader industry. I mean, is there standards that should be implemented around this or that are worth talking about? or Well, I mean, st- standards in this area, I2RS, I think is starting, going
1: to start, you're going to start seeing some progress made here in the very near future on I2RS in this realm. I think we finally came to some conclusions and decisions last week that are gonna be helpful in the Berlin meeting coming up uh, to work through some of the different problems we've been facing there and getting I2RS where it needs to be to solve this type of problem. PSAP is an option. We're looking pretty heavily at PSAP. Uh, BGP is a southbound interface is a possibility, particularly with, uh, with um, FlowSpec is an interesting possibility, but again, you're overloading a protocol. I'm not hyper-enthusiastic about overloading BGP with yet something else, uh, doing all sorts of weird TLVs and and, uh, flow spec to do what I want to do. So there are lots of different things in this area. I think that the biggest spaces to watch are going to be segment routing and I2RS right now. Standards-wise, the biggest issues with I2RS are just getting our heads around the different interfaces and understanding how to get this these things to move forward and get vendors to implement it and get open source implementations that'll do what we want to do. For segment routing, it's the same sort of a thing. We have some vendors who are supporting it in some ways. We don't have a lot of open source implementations and a lot of foundation code to base on right now, and it's actually a bit more complex than something like I2RS is. I shouldn't say a bit more, it's a lot more complex to implement from an implementation perspective than something like i2RS. So there are things that need to happen there. So going forward, it's a challenge. I mean, but on the other hand, I think we have a pretty good group working on solving some of those challenges. And I think we have a pretty good group of not just LinkedIn, but other people who are interested in this space that are going to help us with implementing it and getting it out into the community as an option. Uh,
0: what about providers? They uh, Service providers have tended to be on the leading edge of, well, I would consider this a, a different way to look at software-defined uh, networking. It's, it's just a, a different way to go about it, and providers have been very keen on these sorts of opportunities to rearrange their networks on the fly, etc., Uh, Are there folks in that space that are interested in this model?
1: Oh, yes, definitely. I think that's a lot of what you're seeing with segment routing right now, is you're seeing the drive to do something like this. Um, Just have a very, very basic, simple control plane with a policy overlay that uses segment routing to push those policies into the network. And that's not in the data center fabric so much as that's on core networks. That's on transit providers. And there are a number of transit providers working in this space right now. Uh, very, very large ones working in this space uh, looking at the same sort of problem.
0: Well, Russ White, thank you for once again joining us on Packet Pushers. You're becoming a regular and I love picking your brain to see... Uh... You know, did
1: you say irregular?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Is your brain Abby Normal? right? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, how can folks follow you Russ um, they can find me occasionally on Packet Pushers.
1: Yes, Ethan, I will write more on Packet Pushers. I know, I know, I know, I know.
0: <laughs> you and I but, have the same problem. Too many places to write.
1: I know. And um, my primary blogging platform is Rule11.us, which is a network. And if you're at Cisco Live next week, I'll be around if anybody's there. If this shows out before, then it may not be. And I always attend ITFs, and usually I'm at Nanogs and Lacnog's and things like that, but you can also just email me, or you can find me on Network. Uh, well, like I said, Rule Eleven. Us, or you can find me at Packet Pushers. Any of those.
0: Ross, thanks for joining us. And uh, to you, the listener, thank you for listening to Packet Pushers today. You can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog that is engineers in the trenches, in the hot aisle, writing about what they do. All of that is at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at PacketPushers. You can find us on LinkedIn. You can like us on Facebook and you can rate us on iTunes. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.